0: kind of spiritual view of what chapter 1 did. It's like the two go together and you get the full picture when you see both of them. A bit like Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 are both creation accounts, but they they do it from a slightly different perspective. That's what's going on here in Judges. Uh, And Judges 1 tells the story from the human point of view. It looks at the human, the military, the political. Chapter 2 kind of pulls back the curtain and we see the spiritual truths behind it. Now let me explain what I mean by that. In every situation in life you can see it in those two ways, can't you? You can look at things from your own perspective, Uh, I did this yesterday, I made this decision, then I took that action, or you could think about it spiritually and you could see what God's doing in and through you doing those things in your life. And the Bible teaches both those things as you read through it. If I was to ask you what was going on with Jesus dying on the cross today, you could answer it in two ways. You could say that Jesus died on the cross because he had people at that time who hated him, who wanted to get rid of him, and so they hung him up on the cross and killed him. But the Bible would also tell you that behind that spiritually, if you pull the curtain back, God is at work in Jesus dying on the cross, and He died for the salvation of humanity. So you can look at it both ways. You see it all the way through the scriptures. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? Well, you could answer it because he had brothers that were jealous of him, and he he made it worse, didn't he? Because he used to stir the pot and things like that. Or you could take it back as God as Joseph himself says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And God uses that in slavery of, of Joseph to save people from a famine later on. Well, Judges, is, Judges 2 is a bit like that. It's like the curtains are being pulled back and we're seeing the spiritual reality of what we saw last week in human eyes. Last week, the opening of Judges was the political. It was the human view. Uh, we saw that Joshua had led the Israelites into the promised land. Do you remember? And the Israelite, there were already people living in that land, and the Israelites were given the task of driving the other people who lived there out. Now, we, we noticed that that was very uncomfortable to think about. That colonization and all, driving these kind of uh, people out of their land doesn't seem good to our ears. But we saw that earlier on in the Bible, it had already said, the Canaanites are evil and wicked. What's going on here is not God playing favorites with the Israelites, but there's a sense of the judgment of God coming on the Canaanites because, of, because they were so wicked. Uh, we read of they were doing child sacrifices and a whole lot of kind of evil things. But that's what happened. The Israelites were to drive them all out, but the Israelites didn't drive them all out. They drove some of them out, but they left others living in the land of Canaan where they would live. And we saw that, if you remember, uh, partial obedience is disobedience. They did some of what God said, but not what all of what God said. And the danger for the rest of the book of Judges is that those people that they left in the land would rise up against the Israelites and attack them and oppress them and put them into slavery and all those sorts of things. So the Philistines, the Edomites, the Jebusites would rise up at different times and attack the Israelites because they hadn't driven them all out. Well, our passage, that's what we saw last week. Our passage today is looking at the same situation. But it pulls the curtain back so that we can see the spiritual truths behind it. And it shows that the real problem is not the military threat that the Philistines pose. It's the spiritual threat. Because the Israelites will be living in the land with other people who don't follow the Lord, they will be tempted Their hearts will be tempted to do what the others are doing and live their way and worship their gods. It's a spiritual battle that will be going on. So it's not just about the external armies but the internal temptations. The hearts and lives of the Israelites will be seduced by the Canaanites living in the land. And they will turn from God and God will be angry with that. And so it's God that drives or doesn't drive away the other people in the the land. That's what we'll see as we go through chapter 2. So it's the same as last week, but it's a spiritual perspective. So let's see that as we go through the passage. I'm going to do this fairly quickly, but I hope you'll be able to get a sense of it. Joshua dies at the beginning of the reading. He's buried. Then in verse 10, we see that Joshua. it's not just Joshua who dies, his whole generation dies. And the next generation does not know the Lord. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment because that's remarkable. But this new generation that doesn't know the Lord begins the cycle of events that will happen again and again and again in the book of Judges. There's four parts to the cycle, and we'll see it as we read through the passage. First part of the cycle is the Israelites go bad. The Israelites are evil. Have a look at verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Israelites stop worshipping God. They take on the people around them and they start worshipping those gods. By name it mentions Baal and the Ashtoreths. Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanites and Ashtoreth was the, the female cohort of the, the god. The two went together. And it's always fertility gods. Why is it fertility gods? What, what's the significance of fertility gods? Fertility gods means more crops. Fertility gods means more livestock. Fertility gods means more offspring. It's materialism in a different sense that's what they're doing. So the Israelites start doing what the people around them are doing, taking on their morals, their standards, their practices, worshipping their gods. Verse 17 uses the language of them prostituting themselves to other gods. That's That's the level of what's going on. So do you see this? This is a rejection of Israel of God, the God who created them Rescued them from Egypt, led them through the wilderness, given them this land. They're turning their back on him and worshipping other gods. So first part of the cycle is Israel goes bad. Second part of the cycle is God judges that. God judges it. Verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. These are the other people groups living in the land with the Israelites. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to to defeat them, just as he'd sworn to them. They were in great distress. So the first part is Israel goes bad, they go evil. Second part of the cycle is God raises up one of the neighboring people that live in the land to judge them, to overthrow them, to punish them in some way. Sometimes it's the Philistines, sometimes it's the Jebusites. So the judgment of God is the second part of the cycle. The third part of the cycle is God delivers them. He rescues them. He saves them by raising up a judge. Have a look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Uh, Look down to verse 18 if you can. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. And he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. The Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So Israel goes evil. God judges them as he raises up one of the other people groups. And then God raises up from within the Israelites a judge who rescues them, delivers them, saves them. The third part of that cycle is the raising up of the judges, and that's why the book is called Judges. And so we will look as we go through the book at the 12 judges that are named by, uh, mentioned by name through the book, people like Gideon and Ehud and Deborah and Samson. Uh, judges doesn't... I don't know what judge conjures up for you for me. It conjures up someone in a wig in a courtroom giving out a legal uh, verdict. That's not what it is. Judge is a bit more like... Um, judge dread, if you know the the comic book, uh, delivers justice, saves and delivers the people, rescues the people. That's the judges. So that's the third part. So Israel goes evil. Uh, People are raised up to overthrow Israel, the judgment of God. God raises up a judge to save them. Then comes the fourth part of the circle, which brings us back to the first part of the circle. It's very depressing, very sad. Verse 19, but when the judge died, The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. That's the cycle, four parts to it, that goes on again and again and again in the book of Judges. It just keeps happening. The Israelites start copying the people that are living around them, taking on their morals, their standards, their practices, worshipping the other gods. God raises up and punishes Israel through one of the people groups living around them. He then raises up a judge to save them. Then they go back to their evil ways, except not just their evil ways, they get worse every time, as verse 19 says. So it's not just a cycle that goes round again and again and again. It goes again and again and again, spiraling further and further downward, each generation getting worse than the one before. It's a cycle of sin and salvation. And this cycle is the key to the book of Judges. It's why I'm stressing it at the beginning. A lot of people study the book of Judges just by looking at the Judges. So they look at Gideon and they go, well, here's some strong points from Gideon, we'll try and do that. And here's some bad points of Gideon, we'll try not to do that. Here's some good points from Deborah, and you go through as if it's a character study. It's not. The book of Judges has two main characters, the Israelites and God. And the Israelites are spiraling further and further down, and God is continually dealing with them in certain ways in this cycle. And it will get worse and worse and worse until King David comes. And King David will be the one that finally stops the spiraling down and down. So that's the passage. That's how it sets up the book of Judges. Now, I said there were two, I think, confronting things here that it's good to, good to keep in mind. I say this because Judges will confront us as we go through this series. I said it last week. I'll probably keep saying it as we go through it. We're going to see bloodshed in this book. We're going to see warfare. We're going to see people, God ordering people to be kicked out of the land. We're going to see descriptions of God that make us nervous and think, is this what God's like? And, and that's good. I want to say it's good when we find bits like that because we don't have a simplistic God. We want to plumb the depths of who he is and what he's like. So we're going to stop and pause when we see some things which may be confronting. I think there's two in our passage today which can unsettle, so I just want to pause and mention them and say a couple of words on them before we get into any lessons. The first uh, slightly confronting or difficult part in our passage today is the anger and jealousy of God. Did you see that as the reading went through? The anger and jealousy of God. There's no doubt that God is spoken of uh, as being in anger in this section. And more than that, although it doesn't use the word jealous, It certainly gives the impression of jealousy. Have a look at the end of verse 12. They, the Israelites, provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. There's jealousy, anger and jealousy. Verse 14, in his anger, he hands the Israelites over to the raiders. Verse 20, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and then God acts. All this anger and jealousy can cause real problems for us as Christians because it's not what we like to think of as the character of God. And so it's worth pausing and thinking about this. There are some people who would say anger's got no part in God. I refuse to believe in a God that's angry. And well, then what do you do with a passage like this? we but we do it i think because we tend to think of anger and jealousy as only negative but they don't have to be if anger is selfish it is awful if anger is petulant or irrational or unwarranted then it is a terrible thing but if anger is justified it is appropriate If anger is directed at something worthy of anger and it's proportional and it's not just flying from nowhere but it's understood that this is part of a a consequence to a certain action, then it is appropriate. More than that, sometimes it's inappropriate to not have anger. If you look on some of the injustice in the world and you're not angry about it, what's wrong with you? God's anger at evil is like that. God is angry at things that should provoke anger when he sees the evil in the world. And it's always expected. It's not like um, a parent with a child where suddenly the parent gets angry and the child goes, well, where the heck did that come from? I wasn't expecting that. that uh, it's always expected with God. He spells out. Have a look at verse 15. Very interesting phrase there. It says, God was against Israel as he'd sworn to them. God had promised he would be angry if certain actions were done. God is a faithful God. He's faithful to his promise of anger and judgment, as well as he's faithful to his his promise of forgiveness and salvation. If you can't believe God's promise of judgment, why would you believe his promise of salvation? But it's always expected. Right back in the garden, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. God spells out the instructions and the consequences. He gives the law, thou shalt not. He gives the expectations, and we know what's supposed to happen. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches about hell. None of it's a surprise. Anger, the anger of God is right because it's, it, it comes against evil, and it's not a surprise. It's not, a, it's not petulant or irrational. And it's good that God is angry at evil. Remember, too, when you're struggling with the thought of a God who's angry, it's never just anger. The, the, we can become imbalanced if we just focus on that particular aspect. Even in this case, when Israel is being as bad as they could be, when they're basically spitting at God, the God who saved them and rescued them and saying, to heck with you, I'll do this my way with all these other ones, we see the compassion of God. Verse 18, before the Israelites apologize or repent... We're told he has compassion on them. Right the way through the Bible, there are both those aspects to God, to the Lord. His righteous anger, his undeserved love and compassion and mercy. And we need to hold on to both. One without the other doesn't work. There are some people, as I said, you say, well, I don't believe in the anger part of God. I only believe in the love part of God. There is Love brings anger. If I see the injustice in the world and I'm not angry at it, it's because I don't care. It's only through love that there's, there's a righteous anger. Anger in the Lord is good because it means that one day he will put an end to evil. It means that there are consequences to all the actions that go on. It's difficult, but it's, it's good. Jealousy is similar. The scriptures speak about God in parts being Jealous. And um, sometimes we cringe a little when we hear this because jealousy is an awful kind of emotion to our minds. Shouldn't God be above such a thing? Shouldn't he be bigger than that? And wrong jealousy is awful. When jealousy springs from insecurity, ugh. when, when, when jealousy springs from a possessive personality, ugh. when it results from wounded pride or it's part of some sort of obsession or the like, it's a terrible thing. But sometimes jealousy is entirely appropriate if I'm married and I love my wife and she has an affair I'm jealous justly and more than that the jealousy only occurs because I love if I don't love her and she cheats I'm not jealous I'm indifferent I couldn't care less the Israelites are being unfaithful to God They are worshipping the other gods, prostituting themselves, the verses said. They're being the definition of unfaithful, and God is rightly jealous because he loves his people. And so, although, I wish we could spend more time on this because I feel like I'm not doing justice to it. Although the language of anger and the imagery of jealousy, which I think are in these verses, can be confronting, I hope you can see it's appropriate. It flows out of his character his holiness, his righteousness, his love for his people. It's part of actually what makes him so worthy of our respect and our admiration and our love. I don't want a God who's indifferent. I don't want a God who's got no standards or is dispassionate about evil or for whom there's no consequences or who doesn't care about people. It's good that God is like this. And that's what we're seeing as we go through. This is the same God who gives his son because he loves us so much. But that anger and jealousy is part of of his character and part of the consequences of what we deserve. Uh, Second bit that's uh, a bit tricky here, uh, much, much quicker, is it says that God is testing the Israelites. And again, that language uh, is is tricky to our ears sometimes. In chapter 2, verse 22, God says that he'll use the other nations to test Israel. Says it again in chapter three, verse one. Says it again in chapter three, verse four. The Lord is using the other nations to test the Israelites, and that can sound unpleasant to our ears because it can conjure up an image of God playing games at the expense of the Israelites or the other nations. That a bit like we might tease a cat with a string. Who would do such a thing? But you know, tease a cat with a bit of string for our own amusement. That's what God's doing with the uh, the Israelites and, the, and things here. Now, I haven't got time, as I said, to get into this deeply, but Bible words have Bible meanings. And when the word test is used in the scriptures, God tests for the good of those he's testing. It, testing gives opportunities for people to respond the right way. James chapter 1 says that God tests um, uh, through God's testing, he strengthens. He uses it to grow us in patience in dependence upon him, in trust towards him, in faithfulness. So again, the testing is not a negative. We can kind of spring that way, but I want to tell you it's not that way. I need to keep moving on, so let's move to the lessons. Two lessons for us to consider uh, from this uh, introductory part of the book of Judges. And the first we looked at last week, we're going to think about it again, the danger of the world, the danger of the world. This is the problem of Judges. The Israelites are living in Canaan, surrounded by Canaanites. The problem is that the Israelites took on the morals, the priorities, the standards, the lifestyle of the world around them. And ultimately that led them to turning their back on God and worshipping other gods. And they would never have thought that they would end up in that place. And worshipping other gods, we sit here today, don't we, kind of going, how could they worship other gods? Because we have in mind that they're bowing down to another statue or something. That's not necessarily what worshipping other gods means. People can worship other gods without realising that they're worshipping other gods. Worshipping other gods just means you give that thing in life, whether it's a statue or a person or a, um, uh, an element of life, the worth, the time, the energy, the heart that should be directed to your creator and saviour. When you give something uh, to God, other than God, your heart or your life, it could be that you live ultimately for your family or ultimately for money or for pleasure or for stuff or for self. That is worshipping other gods. That is idolatry. If I said today, came in and said, there's a number of people here that are worshipping other gods, everyone would go, well, I want to know who it is. Uh, But if we looked at our own lives and saw where we invest our time and our money and our priorities and our goals, we may end up thinking it's us, even though we would never have thought that. The Israelites started doing this. Bit by bit, they took on the world around them, and by the end of it, they would turn their backs on God and were worshipping other gods. That should challenge us. I used to look at, I grew up uh, and became a Christian at a time when there were still some older Christians of a different generation to me who I would have called fundamentalists. And uh, the fundamentalist Christians I thought had sad lives because they didn't let Christians play cards because the world plays cards. They didn't let Christians go to cinema because the world goes to the cinema. They didn't let Christians go to dances, not that I wanted to go to a dance, but uh, because the world dances. And they they kind of retreated from the world and I saw them as uh, radicals and extremists And I think in in some ways they were extremists because there's nothing wrong in and of itself with cards or with dancing or whatever else. But if that was the problem of extremism before, we're at the other end of the totem pole. Totem poles go down and up, sorry. We're at the other end of the, 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 the thing. Because now, don't laugh, now nothing separates us from the world. They used to look fairly different from the world, perhaps too different from the world today do I look different from the world at all in the things that I do and the things that I don't do and the things I give my time and attention and money to and the passions that I have and the goals that I have? What separates you from the Canaanites? What separates you from the Canaanites? What do you not take part in that the rest of the world does? What do you do that no one else does? What are the standards or morals that come from the Lord rather than the world around you? These are the questions that will help us strive to not fall into the problems and mistakes of the Israelites. You and I live in Canaan surrounded by Canaanites. The voice of the media and what it tells us is important. The education system, telling our, forming our children as they come up in it. And I'm not here, this is not conspiracy theories where I'm saying the whole education system is terrible. There will be good things in it, but there will also be bad things, corrupt things. There will be helpful things and unhelpful things. The media, the education system, the government. Why do we look to the government for our moral guide? At the moment, they're discussing debates on abortion. And our view as Christians is very different from the view of the government at the moment. Advertising tells us what we value, and the the modern gurus, which are celebrities, there will be voices, things telling us different truths and realities from the Lord. Very easy to suck us in. We buy it. We believe it. We follow it. In the end, we'll worship it. It's why as Christians, I I want lots of Christians... Working in different areas. I'm passionate about trying to raise up the next generation of Christian leaders, ministers and missionaries. It warms my heart when I hear from Miriam saying what she's doing and those kind of things. But we need Christians in all areas of life and in lots of influential areas of life. We need Christians in the media who will bring truth to lies. We need Christian politicians who will be able to stand up for the Lord in Parliament and debate different ways of seeing things. We need different we need Christian artists who will get involved in making movies which set an example of holiness and goodness and sacrifice. We need Christian teachers and lawyers and parents who devote themselves to raising the needs. We need this because the danger is real. We get sucked into the world, the voice the voice of the world. And Christians partly obey, but remember last week, partial obedience is disobedience. Are we committed first and foremost to Jesus and living for him? Is his word our authority before the other competing voices of the world? The danger of the world will be a constant challenge and our whole series and Judges will see it again and again and again. Will you and I learn from it? It's why time together as Christians is so important. Because here we block out the rest of the world and we turn to his word and listen to him. It's where we encourage each other to keep going, living differently, even in the face of a world that kind of persecutes you for it. That's why we need each other in these times. That's the danger of the world. I wish I wish I could go into it more. Secondly, very quickly, the other, the other um, lesson to learn here, the generation problem. The generation problem. Verse 10 is chilling. Verse 10 is shocking. Verse 10 is potentially true at any time. Within one generation... The faith of the Israelites was lost within one generation. Handover of Christian faith to the next generation is vital. It's vital. It can be lost in a generation. And I presume, it doesn't go into it here, so this is speculation, but I I, I would be able to, I feel comfortable arguing about it with, with you afterwards if you want to disagree with me. I presume both generations were to blame. One didn't pass it on well, one didn't receive it well. One were too arrogant to learn from their elders, one was too lazy or too self-focused or wanted to hold on to things too tightly to give it to the next. And in a generation, the faith is lost. Now, all of us here are in different generations. I was trying to work out, I'd say we've probably got five or six generations here, but for the sake of this talk and this passage, there's only two, younger and older. The cutoff is 45, okay? <laughs> 45. If you're 45 or younger, you're the younger generation. If you're 46, like me, you're the older generation. How are you investing in passing the baton of faith on? Taking the baton or passing it on? How are you going? I've spoken many times about how blessed we are here at St. Stephen's to span the generations. We are. We must never take it for granted. We've got to work at it because it can change in the blink of an eye. And things can be going okay now, but the next generation, it's lost, batten dropped. And I'm not taking away that God's in charge of all these things, but there's still a responsibility that's ours and we've got to think about. We've got to invest in the next generation intentionally, deliberately, and not just childminding, not just keeping kids quiet for an hour or that sort of thing. Letting them know what it is to love Jesus and live for Jesus. And I'm not just talking to parents, I'm talking to all of us. Those of us in the older generation, 46 and over, what are we doing to pass Jesus on? To train others for the faith, to mentor, to encourage. What are we doing individually and as a church? Now I will speak to the parents. Parents, how do you view your children? What's your ambition for your children? Is it that they're well educated? Is it that they will find a romantic partner? Is it that they will have a good job with financial security? Or is it that they will love the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not saying that those other first ones aren't important, but the first one is so much more important. How could you not let that dictate how you raise your children? The other's a distant second. When God gave the law to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's a very important chapter, Deuteronomy, those early chapters of Deuteronomy for the Israelites. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what God said to them when he gave them the law. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Aren't those great words from God for the Israelites? impress these law on your heart sorry have them on your hearts impress them on your children and then he says talk about it in every aspect of life not just when you have a family devotional time once a week at a formal time it should be every area of life not just teaching facts but the love for the lord being a normal part of the way we live because otherwise i'm telling you this is the truth the schools will tell them what to think and believe Their phones will tell them what is valuable and worthy in life. Their desires will set the direction for their life because we're living with the Canaanite problem. We want to give them Jesus. We want to give them God's truth. We want to encourage them to live his ways and know him and have his priorities. Part of us putting time into uh, interns here at St. Stephen's is getting on the the next generation and giving them an opportunity to learn and train and serve and minister. Thank you very much to those in the older generation who financially give to to allow that to happen. What a wonderful thing to do. And I want to encourage all those in the older generation bracket, 46 and up, uh, keep serving and looking out for the next generation. It's urgent. It can go in a generation. We need the older generation to continue to set the example, to serve, to love, to model, to inspire, to trust the next generation, to pass it on, to do all those things. Don't just exist when you get to a certain age. Don't just retire or pull back. Serve. You may have retired from financial employment. You don't retire from the Lord. Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that everyone's circumstances are different and things. But we've got to we've got to do it intentionally. I still remember my dad saying that he felt his generation had let down my generation in terms of Christian faith. And I think he was right in some ways. And yet wonderful to see the Lord through his ministry raise up the next generation and try and do something about we can't let it happen. I've said enough to the older generation. Forty five and younger. The younger generation. Live for the Lord. It's what's best. And learn from your elders because they've been through it. The younger Christians that are here, ask, watch, learn. Don't be arrogant and ignorant thinking you know everything. Do you know what a blessing it is to have a hall full of people, Christian men and women, who've lived the Christian life for a long time and have gone through so much of the experiences of life and they can share it with you? People who know what it is to get back up after they've failed and feel like they've let the Lord down in a terrible way. People who've gone through issues of depression and losing loved ones. People who have failed sexually, who've struggled with loneliness, who've had wayward children that have broken their hearts, who've felt at times unloved by God, and yet they're still in God's hands further on. They can offer advice and counsel, and encouragement. It's an incredible opportunity that's here. Respect them, honour them, treasure them. Take the initiative to start a, a conversation. I've had a number of conversations with people in this room, my elders. When I came to St. Stephen's I was uh, I think 33, 32 or 33 years old. I've had a number of conversations with people in this room that I'm looking at now about h- how do you do Christian parenting? What do you do when you're struggling in your marriage. What do you do when you're finding it tough as a Christian? What a blessing to have this here. Young Christians, stop following the so-called wisdom of this world. It's foolishness. Think about the things that you hear and are told and the pattern of life you're displayed by everyone around you. See it when it's hollow. So much of it glitters, but it isn't gold. It certainly doesn't satisfy or save. It's often fake or it's a half-truth. Don't just follow the people around you, buying the same things, doing the same things, setting the same goals. It leads to turning your back on God and worshipping other gods. Think about what your purpose in life is, what it, where you're going. It should be about Jesus. Jesus and living for him that's the be all and the end all the only thing that lasts the only thing you can truly count on perfectly and live for him the danger of the generation here it's very stark the good news is presumably if it can be lost in a generation it can be won in a generation it can be changed for the positive in that generation don't we want that Let's work towards that. I pray we'll be challenged by it. So anyway, I've got to wrap up. This is the introduction to Judges, the first three three chapters. This will be a tough book as we go through it. We're actually taking a break next week. I apologize, I'm in Blenheim. So we're taking a break next week, but we're back into it afterwards. When we get back into it, we're looking at the Judges. But this introduction has set us up for it because of the cycle that's going to carry on all the way through it. This will be a tough book for us to look at. It will confront us. There will be things that we see of God and people that will shake us and unnerve us. Don't be fazed by that. We want a full, robust knowledge of God and who he is and deepening understanding of him and love for him. We'll be tempted at times to think, well, it's just a history lesson. It's not. We are living in Canaan, surrounded by Canaanites. Can you see that? The only difference is we've got Jesus. And so ultimately this book of Judges will give us an even greater depth of love and understanding and thankfulness for the king that you and I do have, even in the midst of living in Canaan. It's going to be a great series. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to think of some of the challenges of those Israelites as they first entered the land, and then more than that, to think how those challenges remain the same for us today. Lord, give us a love for you that puts living for you first. Give us a strength to not just do as others around us, but a desire to follow you and and an ability to encourage each other in that. Such a privilege to have brothers and sisters alongside us as we do it. And we pray that as we do it, we might shine a light to a world in darkness and that that light might be Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.